0: Hello and welcome to episode 92 of the Cognicast, a podcast by Cognitech Inc. about software and the people who create it. I'm your host, Craig Andera. Well, as I record this, it's the day after Thanksgiving here in the United States, pretty big holiday, uh, so it's pretty quiet around the office, pretty quiet around... uh, the CogniCast as well, but that doesn't mean we don't have a good episode for you. Uh, had Stu Holloway on today, but uh, we'll keep the announcements pretty light. I think I'm just gonna mention the Closure Cup 2015. We've mentioned this before. This is going down the 5th and 6th of December, uh, and uh, like I said, in 2015. So this is a, a competition, a programming competition, for Closure and Closure Script programmers. Uh, you get together a team of between one and four people, and you submit a web application. Uh, you have to start uh, at midnight, um, you know, UTC or GMT, whatever you want to, the Greenwich Mean Time, on the 5th of December and you have um, uh, until 11.59, uh, same time zone on the 6th of December. So then everything gets judged. And so, you know, it's, it's pretty fun. It's pretty intense. Typically, people work, maybe not quite around the clock, but they work pretty hard for a, a, good, uh, a good chunk of short, intense time there and uh there's some pretty cool stuff that people get made uh that people make you can go to the website at closurecup.com and see the sorts of things that people did last time around so it's fun you should check it out closurecup.com um like i say we're gonna keep it light today so we will we will limit it to that and we will go ahead and go on to episode 92 of the Cognicast.
1: Okay, sounds good.
0: Cool. Well, then we can kick it off. So, welcome, everybody, to the CognitCast. Today is Sunday, November 22nd in 2015, and our guest today is the inimitable Stuart Halloway. Welcome to the show, Stu. Uh, thanks, Craig. Great to be back. Yeah, it's been a while. The last time we had you on, just as the solo guest, was uh, episode 10, and here we are closing in on 100 episodes, so we are clearly overdue. Um, and one of the things that has changed, one of the many things that has changed in our collective work lives uh, and to include the show since then is we changed the opening tradition. You may not be aware of this, but uh, we now asked our guests a question at the beginning of the show, which is for them to share with us some experience um, of art, whatever that means to them. That I don't know. And, you know, it can be anything. It can be anything from a a movie they like, or a sculpture they once saw, or even a rainbow, I don't really care. It's just whatever that means to you. So what would you like to lay on us today?
1: Well, I think we'd have to do, you know, four or five episodes to talk about my thoughts about movies. So I'll stay away from that. <laughs> uh, I think the, the, um, the thing that has been uh, echoing in my head um, uh, for many years now at, at, at various times and various places is uh, a piece that I performed... Uh, with the Duke Corral when I was in college. It's the Agnus Dei by Christoph Pindareski. Uh, and um, I think now, uh, this wasn't the case then, but now, you know, a quick Google search, um, you can pull up actual, you know, video of recordings of it and, you know, multiple audio options. Um, uh, back in the <laughs> ancient, <laughs> barely internet days, that stuff was not there. So people who are interested um, can take a listen. It's a very intense piece. Uh, uh, it's, um, uh, got a lot of things that are, um, atonal and polyphonic and diverge from, um, you know, simple melodies and harmonies that, that are easy to listen to. Uh, and yet, uh, it has haunting melodies and harmonies as well. So it's not just, you know, throwing a piano down a flight of stairs or anything like that.
0: So now your experience of this, is the, is it the piece itself or was it the performance that you participated in or what specifically reached out and grabbed you? Was it, was it more like your experience of it directly singing it or was it more about just the music itself?
1: So it's a little bit of both. I think one of the, uh, one of the things with, uh, you know, art that's more complex and rewards uh, more careful attention is that um, as a society, we don't give things careful attention that often. And so, uh, musically speaking, uh, one of the ways to be forced to give something careful attention uh, is to perform it uh, rather, than, rather than merely to listen to it. And so I don't think I would have come to appreciate the piece. I probably would not have liked it at all, in fact, um, had I not been forced to perform it and forced to internalize it you know, over a period of two or three months. Uh, so, and I admit that that's still fairly true for me today, that I probably don't, you know, don't acquire complex new musical interests uh, very often. Uh, because of the intensity of work that's required, so it's a, kind of an acquired taste thing.
0: Well, it's very Very cool. I wanna, I definitely want to check that piece out. I um, I do tend to like complex music, although there's a limit to everything. Um, but I, uh, it sounds really interesting. So I appreciate you sharing that with us. And I'm sure that you and I could go on about music. I think perhaps we will take a bit of a left turn into, perhaps matters technological, uh, especially because we are both fresh back from. Both uh, the closure conge and uh, although I didn't attend this uh, due to obligations in teaching an intro closure class, uh, the first ever Datomic Conf. And since it was the first ever uh, and I didn't get to go, I actually think maybe we could start there. So, how did it go?
1: So, uh, it went quite well. Um, so, what just a little bit of background for people uh, uh, prior to the conge, uh, we put on a variety of different Uh, many events that people can opt into. And uh, last year, in 2014, uh, I did a Day of Datomic training, which was uh, interleaved instruction and hands-on labs that uh, we put the video uh, up on the website. So just anybody can go and grab it. And so this year we wanted to do something that moved beyond that. And so we wanted to do something that was more advanced. Uh, However... Uh, When we surveyed the approximately 100 people who were signed up, um, we discovered that, um, as with the conge, there was a large proportion of people who were relatively new or even first timers uh, to Clojure andor Datomics. So that posed a bit of a challenge. Uh, We wanted to do, you know, dive in and do more advanced things. And at the same time, we had to bring people up to speed. So the format that we chose to do was to have a uh, a more architectural uh, overview of Datomic, so without a hands-on piece and really higher-level, not-touching code, which is a little bit risky uh, because a lot of times if you just pound people with abstraction and don't let them you know, get their hands dirty a little bit, uh, it's hard for that to take. Uh, but we took a risk on that, and then um, having done a half-day of that, that freed us up to do some more advanced topics in the afternoon. So uh, my colleague Tim Ewald uh, did a thing on reified transactions and sagas, and this is a set of transaction practices that that you and I and Tim and uh, some of us who have worked together for more than a decade now, um, you know, are things that we've known for a long time, but they're not necessarily um, documented anywhere except in a few uh, transaction textbooks that probably the average developer does not read. So um, talking about that th- those things in the context of Datomic, I think people found uh, extremely valuable. And then David Nolan, uh, another colleague, gave a, uh, a talk about the implications of sort of immutability and simplicity all the way up the stack to the web. And that talk uh, was, in some ways, an advertisement for the talk that he then gave about ohm.next uh, at ClojureConj. And so, if people are interested in seeing some future think, on web development. Uh, that talk was very popular at the con.next, Next, and uh, all those talks are also uh, available on video. So people can grab those off of YouTube or wherever.
0: So you said something in there that I has come up a bunch of times in the context of me and others talking to people about Datomic and Clojure. Uh, you mentioned that there were people at the conference at the, the Datomic Conf who were new to Datomic and or new to Clojure. Um, but, it, you know, we we are careful to say when we're talking to people that although datomic is written in closure it is not a closure only database um, so i assume that that comment was you know something along the lines of well my examples are going to be in closure because that's the language i need I, I prefer to speak in so let me talk to you a little bit about that language but i wonder if you could visit that since it is something that comes up right this this idea of what is the what is the connection between datomic and closure um, you know, either philosophically or you know, as a user of this database, to what extent do I need to know closure, if any? Just you know what I mean. Like this comes up a bunch. I wonder if you could speak to that because um, you always have great answers to questions like these.
1: So actually, I thought that David Nolan um, implied uh, a great answer to this question in his om.next talk, uh, and he made it quite clear that you could opt to take sort of the closure philosophical approach. Uh, in any tier you want, you could do it with ClojureScript uh, and Ohm in the front end. You could do it with Transit uh, and Eden on the wire. Uh, you could do it with Closure and Datomic on the back end. And that each of those things uh, is an opt-in. And so we're seeing people uh, do, you know, pick exactly the ones of those that are useful. You know, people have picked up Transit who have, you know, no interest otherwise uh, in Closure or Datomic or script. You know, have they have longstanding commitments uh, to what they're going to do, but they've been suffering. Um, with the uh, inexpressiveness and non-extensibility of JSON. So uh, one of the things about simplicity, and that's really the driving force in closure design, is delivering a set of orthogonal primitives. And a real test of that, of course, is that you could choose to opt into some of those orthogonal primitives and, and pick some other approach uh, to deal with the other issues, or maybe not even have the other issues. And so we've certainly seen that, and you know, people doing things different ways. Um, having said that, uh, I believe in, um, in having uh, sort of unified, coherent designs, and there's certainly a benefit uh, in using all the tools together and, you know, doing things end to end. But I would say that it was a design fail if that was required, and that certainly has not been the case.
0: Yeah, I mean, you hear, I, I heard the same thing that, that you did in, in terms of what David said, and his own next talk was a was a tour de force, <laughs> I think is a great phrase for that uh, in, the, in both the sense of how sweeping it was and in it's, in a, you know, the things he covered, but also the intensity. <laughs> um, and I think, uh, you know, in there, if you, if you didn't listen carefully, you could, you could think, oh, this is meant to be used with the atomic. But I think I really like what you said about um, the test of simplicity, whether things really are simple, whether they really are separate, is whether they can be used separately. And that maybe sounds obvious when stated like that, but it hadn't really quite ever occurred to me Exactly like that. The thing that occurred to me when you mentioned that was, oh right, so in in classic OO languages like say Java, which of course we always love to pick on, you have to take classes with all the things they bring, you know, the encapsulation and the fact that they're about, you know, namespacing and the fact that they're about all inheritance and all these other things. And in closure they really are broken apart because you can actually do each of those things independently. So I like that as a as a great heuristic for me to determine whether my whether my attempts at simpling <laughs> I guess I should say simplifying, it's a perfectly good word. Simplifying my designs are successful as whether or not I actually have broken them apart, is whether I can actually use those things separately. <laughs> Food for thought.
1: Well, I'd like to do a little bit of anti-picking on Java as well. Okay. Uh, I do think that uh, a lot of important things in design are entirely orthogonal to language. And uh, in the course of both the atomic and closure work, uh, I've had a lot of opportunity in the last couple of years uh, to use uh, more and more of the different web services that are part of the overall Amazon Web Services Toolkit. And uh, I think that there is a ton of really good design there and that there is a, a lot of cloud thinking there that's not just you know run traditional applications. It really is simplicity in the closure sense and sort of picking services uh, that expose uh, a useful orthogonal set of primitives that are aligned with what's physically possible on hardware. So DynamoDB is a great example of this. And, uh, you know, one of the primary APIs for accessing these libraries is the Java API. And there are several things that I might say to complain about that Java API. It certainly, uh, you know, makes objects where objects are not necessary um, and has gotten in my way some. But the, uh, the far more important thing from an architect's perspective is not that the API is a little bit... Um, tedious and and objecty to use, Uh, the more important thing is that it has this set of simple primitives and that those primitives are well documented. And so that as an architect, uh, you can plan how you want to build a system on AWS without having to go and do this sort of uh, trendy trial and error, figure out how things work by using them, um, which is really uh, not good.
0: Right. Because as we've said many times, programming is about thinking. I don't think anybody would argue that point. So I think it's fairly obvious at that point that you know sitting down and building something based on no information is probably not the best thinking discipline. Um, Which I don't. Maybe I'm not. Maybe I'm misstating what you said. Hopefully, I was restating it. But
1: yeah, well, I think that you know people want to have time to think. Although there are a lot of pressures on us as developers, uh, you know, sort of bias for action type things that that don't give people the time um, to do the thinking that's needed. And so then you end up with. A, a stack of things that are choices that were not really choices when they were made. Right. They were, sort of, they were sort of dictated by time pressures. And then, you know, you come up with something that nobody looking at it at the outset would have said, oh, yeah, this, is <laughs> this series of 11 decisions makes sense for any particular objective. And yet you find yourself, you know, living in the brown field uh, that's left over after those choices. <laughs>
0: right. Right. Well, so this actually uh, speaks in maybe a weird way to one of the other topics going wanted to cover today, which is your keynote, which is about debugging. So in some senses, I think, that, so the, what's the segue there, Craig? Like, what on earth are you thinking? I think you make those implicit choices or you fail to you fail to make any other choices, maybe a better way to put it. And then you wind up with a system that doesn't work. And then how do you go about figuring out what's wrong. And so you gave what I thought was a really great keynote about this at the conj and, and like all of the videos at the conge it's available online, people can watch it, but I've got you here and it would be great to hear you, you know, just speak a little bit about, you know, what you had to say. I don't want you to restate it obviously, but, but just, you know, like what was your keynotes too?
1: Yeah. So I would love to talk about this for about, um, 36 hours. (laughs) Uh, it's, it's amazing.
0: And, I, and, may, I may cut you off before that.
1: <laughs> it's amazing because being good at debugging is a way to be thought smart without actually having to be particularly smart. I mean, it really is you know, trying to find, uh, you, know, you have uh, uh, something that happened that you didn't expect. And that's one of the important points that I made in the talk is that uh, you really need to state expectations and what happened as opposed to the sort of generic throwing your hands up and saying it didn't work. That's one of those sentences that, that all the actually, uh, actual information is hiding behind pronouns and ambiguity. But having stated that you know, I have a situation where I executed these steps, I expected to see A, uh, and I saw B, you know, how to then bisect the world? And that's really what you want to do. You want to find uh, sort of uh, a hypothesis about you know, why I could have seen B instead of A, And then a great hypothesis is one that really sort of splits the state space in half and says, well, you know, it could have been this whole family of problems or it could have been that whole family of problems. What experiment is going to, you know, cut the world in half? Because if you can cut the world in half, anyone who's ever played 20 questions knows that you can very quickly, you know, narrow in on an answer. And people make uh, a couple of classic uh, mistakes in this game. Probably the biggest one is that they make changes that are not well-founded. They're not well-founded because they don't actually represent the kind of experiment that I just described, or even an experiment at all. It's just, you know, I'm frustrated. I don't understand what the system is doing, so I'm going to make a change and observe the system do something else. Uh, And people who have done this for a while, you know, you've seen scenarios where uh, people actually, one thing that can happen there is you can just wander off into the weeds and get completely lost. Another thing that can happen there is that you end up uh, changing the behavior such that the symptom goes away without actually having fixed anything. Perhaps even having made the system more buggy, right? By introducing you know, a counteracting effect that masks the symptom. And so it's incredibly important to understand the motivation for changes that you make in a system before making them. And this really goes against people's natural bias for action. And it also goes against pointy headed managers um, bias for wanting to see action.
0: Yeah, I think if you talk to experienced debuggers and they'll all say the same thing, which is, when I make a change, and the problem just goes away, and it, and I don't have a good theory as to why it, the cause is connected to the effect, that that's actually almost worse than leaving the bug in place, right? Like, oh, I, I, I twiddled the frobnitz, and the, and the foo bar stopped working. Okay, why? And if you can't answer that question, then you, you've really not succeeded in debugging your program. You've just made a different program that. You don't understand the character characteristics of either. That's exactly right. So this is something that I was wondering about a little bit when I was listening to your talk, which is – so we talked a lot on this show about – maybe not a lot, but we've talked on the show before about the role of creativity in programming and how I, I at least believe that it is a creative act in very much the same way that uh, painting a painting is a creative act, that it uses the same parts of your brain – you know, I think Rich's hammock talk from way back, uh, one of the, was it the first or second con? I think it was the first one, right?
1: Yeah, it may have been the first. Yeah,
0: so anyway, his, ta- his hammock talk, I think, really is about how to tap the creative, well, part of it at least, is about how to tap the creative parts of your brain, the offline parts, the unconscious parts. And in your debugging talk, you emphasize quite correctly, in my opinion, the, the fact that debugging is, t- to a large degree at least, uh, a mechanical process. Like you said, you can just turn the crank and you will have lots of success. But I still feel, and I don't have anything to back this up necessarily, I still feel like there's an element of creativity involved in debugging that that is unconscious, that is not rational, that is not, you know, that there are leaps involved. And I wonder if you could comment on that.
1: Well, absolutely. I think that those those ideas are entirely compatible. You know, creativity is uh, flourishes inside of constraint. And so... Uh, you know the constraint here is that you want to have a process that's pointing towards, you know, potentially reaching the answer and narrowing down the state space. Um, that doesn't mean that you don't have to have, you know, domain knowledge, creativity, um, ability to step away from the problem um, and let your subconscious mind work on it. Uh, I will say that you know many of the most difficult bugs that I've ever worked on are things where, you know, I've been executing the scientific method and performing experiments, and I get to a point that Uh, I'm a little bit stuck in the sense of I don't understand what I've seen. And uh, at that point, you know, rather than yielding to the temptation of just doing more stuff, I'll just get up and walk away. And often it is standing in the shower or at the first moment when you wake up in the morning, or for me, while running, that all of a sudden I'll say, oh, yeah, I, I, you know, sub detail 74, paragraph B, where I was thinking, You know, it went this way. It actually went that way. And when you sort of filter that back up through the entire tree of understanding, you know, I had a misconception at the very top. And now, presto, I understand the problem.
0: It's funny. So I've had exactly those three. In fact, those are probably my three primary sources of, you know, creative inspiration, either for debugging or for, uh, you know, actually like creating a solution rather than working on problems with the solution. Uh, And it brought to mind this thing. And I hope you'll indulge me in a brief story here. I remember there was this, I used to bike on along these paths along the river, down in, uh, by the Minnesota River in, in Minnesota, per, perhaps, obviously. And there was this these two points, and I could get from point A to point B pretty reliably. But I couldn't get from point B to point A reliably. I'd always wind up, like, somewhere I didn't intend to go. And I eventually realized it was because it was essentially a tree with its root at A and the, and the branch, one of the branches out, out at B. And so you had to make fewer choices. I mean, the same number of intersections, but they kind of all pointed in it toward from A towards B. So, you know, like you'd go along and, and you'd have to make fewer choices, fewer unobvious choices in one direction than the other. And so I, I'm kind of, that you, what you just said makes me think of that. It's like, okay, when you're, when you get that inspiration, you're standing down at the end and you're like, Oh, I can trace it back right? I can trace it back because I know how to go that direction. Whereas from the other direction, when you have a problem and like many possible causes or whatever, that it might be harder to see from that direction. So I'm not sure that's apropos of anything, but you know, it's uh, it's Sunday morning and I haven't had all my coffee yet. And so it just came out of my mouth.
1: Well, that's definitely an experience that I've had as well. The uh, uh, You've been in my neighborhood that we have a, the Johnston Mill Nature Preserve, which is where I do most of my running. And I know the preserve like the back of my hand just for variety's sake, having lived here for a while now, I've started uh, taking a short ru- uh, drive over and running in the Chapel Hill North Forest, uh, which is over by the Chapel Hill Airport. And the trail there has a lot of that characteristic you described, where depending on which direction you run it, the, the visibility uh, into your decisions or the obviousness of, oh, I should go this way, uh, is a lot different. And so um, you know, from a runner's perspective, it's one of those things where if you want to accidentally double or triple your run distance <laughs> on a good day. Been there. Yeah. So you go out, you know, I'm going to run five miles and you come back and like, oops, I just ran 12 miles because yeah. I got completely flummoxed. But yeah, definitely have had that experience. And of course, those longer runs sometimes are where you really have the, the breakthrough ideas. Yeah. Um, I really wish my knees could keep up with my brain on this one.
0: Not my knees, but various other bits of me are giving out in ways that are incompatible with long runs, but... Uh... Uh, So I wanted to ask you, too, I I jotted this question down because I think it might be interesting. Do you have either a hardest bug that you've ever found or a favorite bug that you've ever found?
1: So uh, my favorites uh, are not necessarily the same um, as the hardest. The one that I uh, presented as an example uh, in my talk is actually one of my favorites because it really uh, was sort of a hat trick in terms of demonstrating several different important ideas. Uh, One of the important ideas from the talk is that, you know, on House MD it's never lupus. Mm-hmm. Uh, in, in JVM debugging, um, we have a kind of anti-lupus that's always the culprit, and it's memory pressure slash garbage collection. And the reason for this, and we don't have to go into all the details, but, but you know, being in a low memory scenario puts your program into uh, a state that's vulnerable and, and likely minimally tested. Also, um, the symptoms are often widely removed um, from the actual failure. And you know, one of the, um, the foibles of, of uh, debugging uh, in environments where symptoms are often stack traces is that people assume that something about the stack trace is directly the failure. And so uh, we were debugging a scenario where there was a stack trace in a datomic based app that uh, appeared, to implement, uh, appeared to implicate HornetQ, which is a communications open source uh, library. And, and further, having implicated HornetQ, it implicated the intersection of Datomic with Cassandra. Uh, so Datomic can use different underlying storage engines, and uh, the information had us pointed at Datomic plus Cassandra because the same problem did not happen um, with Datomic plus uh, dev storage, which is uh, H2 under the hood. And so... There's uh, some interesting tidbits of information there, and it would have been quite easy to make the classical mistakes and sort of fly off and be like, okay, well, we sort of understand that there's some weird interaction between Datomic and Cassandra, so we should you know, be carefully studying that. Uh, but instead of doing that, uh, what we did uh, was to say, so we have a, we have a hypothesis there, or, or a, a, at least a vague one, which is that Datomic plus Cassandra is ill-behaved in such a way that something bad happens in Hornet Q. So let's create a minimal reproducing case. And this is one of the great things about software, right? In science, trying to figure out how to bisect the world and rule out other possibilities is sort of requires a broad understanding of nature. Uh, In software, bisecting the world is often incredibly easy because you have a complicated scenario that demonstrates some behavior and you can reduce it to a tiny scenario that only has the nouns from your hypothesis in it. And so in this case, uh, the steps to take were, you know, to take the query that led to the problem, and run it in a loop in a system that had only ten line Java program, the Datomic peer, and Cassandra storage. And there was some resistance to performing that experiment. There was some, you know, hey, we kind of already know a lot here. We ought to start studying. Uh, but we we ended up performing the experiment, and lo and behold, we discovered that it was in fact lupus. Right? It was <laughs> it, it was in fact an out of memory condition. And the Hornet Q symptom uh, was uh, caused by a timeout. If you work in systems that are timeout-based, then running out of memory can lead to those timeouts because you get really long GC pauses. So OK, so it, was, <laughs> it turned out that doing the experiment was a good idea. It turned out that it was garbage collection, which it always is. And then it turned out that the idea that it was Cassandra-related was a red herring, um, having run that experiment Um, We then ran the opposite experiment to show that the problem did not happen with H2, and lo and behold, it did happen with H2. So the problem was entirely uh, about memory utilization of this query, and it had nothing to do with storage whatsoever. And if we had not uh, said, you know, we have to make small experiments and then use the small experiment to really substantiate a hypothesis, uh, we could have been completely in the weeds.
0: Yeah, I've commented before that a modern computer program, you know, running... Even a simple program still has arguably a trillion parts if you count every transistor that's involved, right, each one of which is a switch, each, of which, which, each one of which could fail, although that's generally not the source of the bugs. You, there's still like a lot of um, complexity even in the smallest programs, but what you're talking about, of course, cuts that complexity, especially if you consider, you know, number of possible states or number of at least likely states you know by several orders of magnitude so yeah 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 Yeah, that'd be that would have been a those feel good right like when you solve that type of bug or really any bug but i think particularly the ones that are devious it's a really good feeling at least to me
1: well and i think that you know the opposite of that you know some of the hard bugs that i've worked on were hard because um, you knew what experiments you might want to run but setting up the experiments was expensive in terms of human effort Mm. and so you know we have a you know at least in my experience, this has been going on my entire software career. We've gotten better at better at representing things at data. And we've gotten better at better at making um, processes around software automated. So automated deployment, automated configuration, and so forth. And all of that kind of work is incredibly important when you want to run these experiments. Even so, you'll find yourself in the scenario where it's like, okay, you know, my next experiment is going to take someone writing a program. You know, Someone writing a program that's going to take three hours to write in order to create the conditions for the experiment, uh, it's tempting to go and say, you know what, I'm just going to scratch my head and think about the problem for three hours rather than, you know, taking the effort to write that program. And uh, my experience has been that, you know, if you're doing a good job of coming up with the program that you need, uh, that that is just going to be a faster path to the answer. Also, writing those programs uh, tends to put pressure on your design. You know, why was that program so hard to write? Um, If your system had been more amenable to automation, if it had been more simple, if it had been composed of simpler parts that you could get to, then it probably would have been uh, easier to write that experiment. So it it puts a positive pressure uh, on architecture to do that kind of experimentation.
0: It's funny. It's almost the opposite of the problem we we see when we're creating the programs, which is uh, bias towards action and away from thinking. (laughs) Kind of odd that it would work that way. So there, so that's great. I mean, your, your keynote really was awesome, and people should definitely watch it. I don't think there's anybody that couldn't stand to be better at debugging or to hear some of the important lessons that you present about debugging again. Um, but there's something else that happened recently that was significant that I would also like to talk about, uh, and that's the release of Closure 1.8 RC. What are we at? One or two now?
1: we're at RC2 now
0: RC2 and so why is that significant it's, it's it's not really significant the RC2 is not like this big deal not compared to what the release final release of 1.8 will be but it does kind of bring up the whole life cycle release process you know questions about how closure lives and grows that that you are actually an excellent person to talk to since you sit right at the center of that uh, of that process uh, and I know you had a few things you wanted to say about that. So maybe we can turn to the question of closure stewardship.
1: Yeah, this is a topic that is near and dear to my heart. Uh, I'm amazed uh, every day at the um, intelligence and expertise people that I get to work with uh, in the closure community. Both people who are contributing to closure itself, and people who are consuming closure and you know asking hard questions. Uh, I have been involved with closure since. Prior to the 1.0 release, I was not one of the very earliest, but um, at least earlier than that. And so counting 1.0, uh, this 1.8 release will be the ninth release of Clojure uh, that I've been involved with. And uh, one of the things that is quite dramatic about Clojure, you know, as sort of a hot new young programming language, uh, has been the stability of the Closure language across these releases. And that is, you know, a direct consequence of the care that Rich puts into introducing things and the high bar uh, that he sets. And the result of that is that the code that I wrote for my book, um, which was pre-1.0 when the code was written, um, has survived almost entirely unscathed across nine releases of Clojure now. And that's quite dramatic if you compare it to some other popular languages where it seems like a big part of the job of being a development team is... You know, reassessing—you uh, know—can I move to this point release of the language, or is everything I've done going to fall apart and require—you know—substantial change? And so uh, that's been an amazing characteristic, and it's a characteristic that didn't happen by accident. It comes out of having a a methodical and um, unhurried approach to—you know—making enhancements and changes to the language.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think one of the and uh, you know, me as a not a language designer, but I I still kind of watch the process and see if there's any lessons I can learn from it for other systems, other things that I'm making. And I didn't grossly oversimplify here, but one of the things is I noticed that Rich um, and and you and the other people involved in in figuring this stuff out um, are very reluctant to very very reluctant to take anything away. In other words, like there's a sort of hierarchy of adding things is is generally okay uh, but changing existing things including removing them is is got to have a much higher bar is that a, is that a fair assessment
1: I mean I think it's the first half of a really important idea and and you know it's an idea that's directly um, related to JVM which is the host platform that we run on right Java has a reputation that you know is wow these guys will never get rid of anything <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> you know nothing you know there's stuff that's been deprecated for a decade and it's still in there. And uh, Brian Goetz uh, gave a great talk about stewardship at the previous conge. And the observation that he makes about this is that people say, you know, wow, Java's really slow moving because they you know, never remove anything, because they don't have any experience with the alternate experiment, which is that Java doesn't exist, because, or Java is a much less pleasant place to, to dev in, because they do remove things and change things. So you know, we definitely like to take a page out of that book uh, and be very cautious about removing things. Having said that, if you say in advance, I'm going to make something and I'm not going to remove things from it because this is production software that people depend, of, depend upon and that, that as developers we you know, often by orders of magnitude underestimate the costs we inflict on others by changing and removing things. Uh, you know, Once you start with that uh, perspective, you're also going to be very reluctant to add things. Adding things is better in the sense that it's not hurting anyone. But if you want to have any kind of coherency over time, you can't add things very much either.
0: Uh, connect the dots there for me. I think I understand that. But if you could be more explicit on why that's the case.
1: Well, I mean, do a thought experiment. So the closure community, let's just say, just to pick a number, uh, has you know, uh, you know, 10,000 enthusiastic active users. Um, if 1% of those 10,000 active users is incredibly sharp and knows uh, intimate details uh, about how closure works. Then that one percent is hundred people. Um, if those one hundred people have ten good ideas about how to improve closure, you know, over the course of their engagement with it, um, and you set a bar that you're only going to accept ten percent of those, that's hundred new capabilities added to closure. That's a big number. And so when you start to look at the numbers like that, you realize that um, either the language itself is going to grow kind of exponentially over time, right? To match the, the number of good ideas that can come in as the community grows. Or there's going to be what appears to be a ridiculously high bar from a numeric perspective, which is that 99.9% of things that are proposed, um, you know, die in their tracks, you know, before gaining any traction at all, which is a lot closer to what actually happens. Um, and you have to do that if you're not going to have that kind of growth. And of course, the saving grace, especially in a Lisp ecosystem, is that most of the kind of things that people want, they don't need closure to change to do. Right? There's a, a huge opportunity for extending closure through the language. People have access to macros. People have access to code as data. And so, what you've seen is an explosion, not of change within closure, uh, but an explosion of libraries providing capability on top of closure.
0: Yeah, for sure, and that is awesome. I mean, you know, uh, we saw, for instance, core async is merely, uh, using that word ironically, I suppose, um, a library, right? Even though it's got code rewriting and other things that, you know, if you didn't have um, some kind of a certain level of power in your language, you wouldn't be able to pull off as a library. And yet people still really, really seem to want um, things to be in closure. I mean, again, again, using sort of air quotes here, right? What does it mean to be in closure? I mean, I suppose there's a sense in which, at some point, for some things you have to change the compiler. But but there are things such as, you know, libraries for random number generation or whatever that really are just are just new functions, but that people really want to be in closure core. And I wonder if you have an understanding of that impetus and anything to say about it.
1: Well, sure. I think one of the things there is to really break apart the problem. That's a great example. Let's say we have an awesome library for random number generation. And let's say that while we were making it, we also came up with you know, five sort of sequence abstraction functions that we use every day in our own applications that happen not to be in Clojure Core. Right? It would be great uh, to have those things in Clojure Core because, <laughs> I mean, as a person who's developing those libraries, if you put it in Clojure Core, it's somebody else's problem. Right? So it's, it's great from that perspective, right? There's a, there's a bigger ecosystem of, of people who can maintain it they 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 have expertise and so forth, um, but what you what I think often people want is to have a packaged thing for people who are getting started that has you know more batteries in it than closure does, and that's a problem that can and I would argue should be solved uh, by providing you know additional packagings around closure that have those things in it that don't require uh, you know making the addition to core, and now you have. You know, a system where everybody wins. You can have somebody who is a sort of disc jockey of releases who says, "You know what here's the here's the closure plus batteries included um, thing that has that has core closure, version one point eight, but it also has fast moving, freewheeling enhancement library, version nine hundred and seventy one and then you can um, revision that faster moving thing uh, on a much more uh rapid pace uh, than closure itself. And people who don't want that kind of churn don't have to opt into it, right? They can continue just to consume the raw library. And to some degree, we get that out of the sort of lining in plus plug-in ecosystem, right? There are people who have created profiles that they work in, that they carry uh, from project to project that have a stack of tools and libraries that are not part of Clojure proper.
0: I mean, is that what that looks like? I mean, you say we have it to some degree, but... uh what would that look like in your ideal world? I mean, is that something that comes from the same group that's working on closure, the language, or is there another organization, and, and does it include tooling? I mean, I don't know if you've thought about this stuff at all, but I'm curious what you think that means.
1: Well, I mean, I think suggesting that it requires thought is a great starting point, right, that, that there's you know, a lot of things to consider here. I think to, to add a first approximation, all of the above, right? I mean, the closure ecosystem already has... Uh, a huge number of organizations uh, contributing to it um, that are not the same groups of people that are maintaining the core language. It also has a set of libraries uh, in the Contribs, uh, a set of libraries that are maintained more similarly to the way Clojure is and under the same license. And so you already have, sort of have the ability to make either or both of those choices. And you know most Clojure developers make both, right? They consume a large number of libraries that are from the Contribs, uh, and they also consume a large number of libraries... Uh, that are outside uh, of that. And that's a good thing, right? Having that, having that variety and having that choice. I do think that there are some deep challenges here. Um, so one of the things that the Clojure ecosystem has in it is a dependency on, on sort of the Java deployment world of Maven and the way Maven views releases. And um, there are, this is definitely not ideal uh, but the solutions are not necessarily trivial either. So in the Clojure 1.0 days, um, everyone consumed Clojure as a source repo. Right? So people were consuming Clojure, and when a change was you know considered or proposed or made in Clojure, uh, people who were using Clojure were consuming it instantly. Um, and Clojure has a pretty good reputation for stability so that it was feasible to say, you know what, I'm going to track commits. Right, I'll take the latest commit of Clojure and go straight to production with it in, in short order. Uh, the level of indirection introduced by Maven and the fact that snapshots are not great is that now people rarely consume new closure bits until there's a packaged release that's named an alpha or a beta. And a lot of times people don't even consume those. So I think there are, are real challenges there. Having said that, we have to be really careful not to throw out the baby with the bathwater, right? I don't want to have, I don't think it benefits us to have a closure tooling centered ecosystem. And I think this is true. Not just enclosure, right? I don't think we should have a lining and centered ecosystem enclosure. I don't think that the Groovy ecosystem should be Gradle centered. I don't think the Scala ecosystem should be SBT centered. Uh, I think that doing that, you know, runs the risk of walking away from the fact that that these languages targeted the JVM to begin with. And so there's not a, there's not a great answer. There there's not a there's not an obvious era parent to Maven and that stuff in the Java ecosystem uh, to target and. Uh, it's easy to do things that serve our own island. And I think that the build tools do that in every language ecosystem, uh, and that it's unfortunate because Clojure tries to escape the Lisp curse by, by running on the JVM, and then you know it's all too easy to bring the curse back on ourselves uh, by building a set of tools that are for clojure only, not for consumers of uh, JVM binaries, which Clojure is designed to facilitate.
0: Yeah, one of the things I said to our... Our intro class this week was you will go through a period in your closure journey wherein you will say oh i need whatever encryption or you know random numbers let me go see if there's a closure library for that and you'll maybe find a closure library that's not very good but you will use it because it's the closure library and then you will discover that said closure library has shortcomings and that underneath the hood it's actually using some java library and that said Java library for encryption or random numbers is actually very, very good. And then you will use said Java library directly. Now, you can't always do that, or it's not always ideal to do that. And there are, there are closure libraries that that do very much add value over the thing that they wrap, if they wrap anything. But my suggestion to the students was that they look for opportunities to skip that middle step (laughs) because we do really benefit greatly from existing high-quality Java libraries and, more importantly, our ability to access them and use them and manipulate them directly Um, to the extent that, as I said to the students, it's, for me at least, and this is subjective, I I find it more pleasant to program against Java libraries in Clojure most of the time than I would to program against those same libraries in Java.
1: I agree with that, and that is you know, more and more true as tools like Cursive improve. So where you really have a tool that embraces the power of what's going on in the Java ecosystem and the power of what's going on in the Clojure ecosystem and has a rich GUI and has now a commercial entity uh, behind it. So if people have not played with Cursive, I would definitely encourage them uh, to check it out. Absolutely.
0: Um, I want to loop back real quick to something you mentioned. You mentioned... Um you mentioned contrib, and I think uh, – I know that there are there – def- there is definitely some confusion in the world about what that means exactly. I mean, for instance, there are libraries in the world that are called, you know, closure.contrib or closure.core.something. And, you know, someone recently asked me, well, what are the conventions or what, what does that mean? Is there, is there some sort of blessing that goes along with names and I gave them an answer that I'm actually not totally sure is correct, so I thought I would ask you since you're uh, much more likely to know the the correct answer.
1: So uh, the closure contribs, um, uh, you know we are we are big advocates of functional naming, not brand naming, and so uh, the contribs all have names that are about what they do, not names that are cool, clever names that people thought up. And so they are. There is a tree of like seven names underneath closure, and so it's closure.core, closure.tools, uh, closure.data, closure.test. and those represent you know areas of functionality. And when something becomes a contrib, uh, it gets a name that's hierarchical in that way. and so that's part of the process uh, of becoming a contrib. And then within Contrib, um, the idea is that this is a set of tools that are Built and managed in a unified fashion. And so that includes the license, that includes the contributor agreement, that includes the Hudson or Jenkins instance, whatever it is, that does the builds, that includes the shape of the Maven palms and so forth. So there's a large set of tools that have that common tooling. And uh, because they're managed in a way that's consistent with the Clojure CA, they have the possibility at some time of being promoted into core closure. And so what I would say to somebody is that, you know, if you want maximum um, control of your own open source library, then you should do it as you see fit. Um, and if, you want, uh, if you're building something that you really think has some potential of being core in the future, then starting as a contrib and being compatible with that is uh, you know, by far the smoothest path towards enabling that at some point down the road.
0: But but I think an important point is that the processes are different, right? Like the, the way that a change makes it into something like uh, Clojure Data XML is different than the way something makes it into Clojure Core. I wonder if you could compare and contrast.
1: Right. So uh, changes are made uh, across the ecosystem uh, uh, within things that are managed uh, in the closure style. Changes are made. Uh, with a bias towards uh, conversation about problem statements and solution and a bias against uh, get pull requests, right? So we don't use pull requests um, at all. And uh, that's a matter of uh, being able to track things and uh, compatibility with the CA. Also, and I think this is an important thing to say and maybe hasn't been said often enough, um, the contribution model is designed for the convenience of the core maintainers, not for the convenience of contributors, and that's important, right? The core maintainers spend thousands of hours working on this stuff, and so a lot of times people come up and say, "Wow, well, you know we'd have a lot more uh, contribution if the process was designed to be more convenient to casual contributors." Well, a casual contribution is valuable, and it, and it does move things forward, but it's not the core of the value proposition, and the core of the value proposition is what the core contributors are doing, and so the process is designed. Uh, you know to benefit and to be convenient for them, and it 's not necessarily the most common you know, practice outside, certainly, if you look at the way uh, projects are run on GitHub. Uh, there are a lot of people uh, besides just the closure team who have decided uh, that pull requests are not the uh, not the most convenient way to talk about code, and you know we really want to see uh, a statement of a problem, a statement of alternatives and a statement that is easy for an outside observer to to assess. One of the things that people uh, habitually underestimate is the amount of time that goes into the process of screening a ticket for closure. My guess would be that for every hour uh, someone spends uh, working on a contribution, there are at least five hours that are going to be spent by someone else looking at that contribution before it gets into closure. And so the process needs to take into account optimizing making that one hour better and more effective, but also optimizing making that five hours better and more effective. And Alex Miller has done uh, heroic work uh, to work with people who are working on contributions and to help educate them on how to make something that can be consumed by a reviewer more quickly. Um, It's a plain fact that in Clojure, uh, a block of code is never the most convenient thing for a reviewer to consume because that's basically like doing the job again. Right? If somebody comes up with a block of code and says, I've, you know, I had this problem in closure this block of code solves it, then the job of the reviewer is basically to do all the work over again uh, while reading somebody else's crack at the work. I and mean, that's totally sensible for you know, correcting a spelling error in a doc string. Uh, but it's not at all the efficient way uh, to assess you know, a major new feature or even a major bug fix uh, where there were five or six possible problems that were considered and alternative approaches. And so learning how to lay that stuff out so that a reviewer can consume it efficiently, uh, is a big part of the job of becoming a contributor to Clojure.
0: So that makes sense to me. I, I, I do want to revisit the pull request thing, because this does come up fairly often. Um, so within that framework, what is it specifically about pull requests that people seem to love that that make them less suitable than the alternative that Clojure has chosen?
1: So I think that the, the major thing is that the workflow is not about code, right? Pull requests is the tail wagging the dog. It says that the workflow is about code. That's not. The workflow is about ideas. The workflow is about conversations between people. I think then within that there are uh, things about pull requests that are a lot more tactical, and you know could be different or could be made better, right? So for example, there are race conditions in GitHub's infrastructure around managing pull requests where you could accidentally commit something you didn't intend to commit. That seems kind of you know, mildly crazy, but there you have it. And uh, there's also, you know, the ability and infrastructure for tracking. So uh, identity management is important when you have a CA. And so uh, we have put together a system that can keep track of the person who contributed code, which is was straightforward to set up with patches. I don't doubt that it could be done around pull requests, but the whole ecosystem there is more casual about those things. And so it would be a matter of going and trying to figure out you know, how to map that onto the world of pull requests. And I, I don't think that's a good use of my time.
0: Well, cool. I'm glad you addressed that because I know it does come up and I'm sure people have more questions, but they are, of course, always welcome to ask those in the appropriate forums. But I, but I want to make sure that we move on a little bit because, you know, Stu, I always have such fun talking to you. The time goes right vibe. Here we are. It's nearly an hour. And, you know, we, uh, we do try to keep the episodes to somewhere south of the uh, 36. Was it days or hours that you said that we could talk about all this stuff? So uh, That was
1: only 36 hours. Oh, I merely wasn't...
0: 36 hours. All right. So, well, this will be part one of 36 then. And I guess yeah. I, there's a million things we could talk about, but I think maybe, um, maybe you know, we will not wait uh, 80-something episodes to have you on again to talk about more of them. That said, um, I do want to make sure that we do what we always do, which is to leave time uh, towards the end of the episode or wherever in the episode for uh, guests to talk about things that they want to talk about as opposed to the things that I want to ask them about. So we've come to that part of the show. So, Stu, what else? What should we talk about today? Is there anything else you'd like to bring up or discuss or lay on our listeners?
1: So I, I, I would. I just This is a, a quick thank you to a large number of people in the closure community. Some who are close friends and some who I only met. People who have reached out and been supportive to me and my family uh, around uh, my wife, Joey's issues, lifelong issues with depression. So Joey, uh, you know, you talked to her on an episode of the podcast, and that was, you know, a medium, large deal for our family to to go out and publicly talk about uh, depression. We think it's important for people to be talking about it because uh, it's an issue that is all too often um, swept under the rug or talked about in a very unsophisticated way. And uh, it has just been amazing to me the number of people in the closure community who have reached out directly to Joey or to me or who walked up to us uh, at Conj uh, and, and, you know, offered some of their own stories. And it's, um, it's validating to know the importance of having this conversation. And, you know, maybe Joey will come back on a future podcast yeah. And, yeah, yeah. and provide an update because we have, you know, some interesting new uh, scientific and medical findings that we've made in the last couple of years. But, but the big thing that I wanted to just say is thank you, that, you know, it's am- amazingly moving uh, to have people that you don't know at all uh, reach out to you and uh, and you know support the efforts that that my incredibly brave wife uh, is making. Yeah,
0: Joey is totally awesome, and it was great to get a chance to see her at the at the conch. Um, so it was it was awesome that she made it, and I I for one hope that she comes to uh, more of our events so that I can get to see her, but also that she so that she can get to as you say. Um, get to interact with the people who I know that she has um, affected you know, in various ways, but including coming on the show and talking about her. Her very significant issues with depression. So as that was, that's awesome to hear that people are talking to her and I would encourage everyone to continue to do that. Um, cool man. Well, uh, that is I, it would be hard to top that. I don't know if there's anything else you want to talk about out of a technical nature, but uh, certainly seems like a good place to, uh, to turn to our final question if you've got nothing else that you want to discuss today.
1: No, I'm ready to field the final question. Just, it, ha- it can't be a hard one.
0: No, I don't think it is, especially for, for me. Well, I won't say especially for you. Um, I guess I just did, but <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I apologize if, that was to, if, it was, if it will be interpreted uh, in, in any pejorative sense. It wasn't meant that way. But anyway, the final question, um, and you might not know this, um, is, uh, is one that we ask now with that of our guests at the end of the show. We say, we would like you to share with us a piece of advice. Um, and this can be advice that you like to give or it could be advice you've received or, or even perhaps advice you've just overheard. It's just advice that you like, that you would like to share with our listeners.
1: My advice will be uh, related a little bit to why um, I'm not up to speed on what questions you ask and haven't listened to more recent podcasts. <laughs> and, and that is, uh, my advice is if you haven't, to, uh, to give a chance to um, audiobooks. So I spend a fair amount of time listening to audiobooks these days and there are, uh, there's a reason for it and then there's sort of a sub-strategy within it. Uh, The reason is that, um, you know, having spent a brief time in academia, I was taught the poisonous ability to scan through books, you know, sucking out the marrow of what you were looking for and not really enjoying them as books. And having become that kind of reader, it's hard to, to unlearn that skill. And so audiobooks Force me to engage with authors at the pace the author intended, right? There's not an, or at least as I listen to them, right? I'm not sitting there with some sort of advanced GUI that lets me speed up and slow down the author's speech and you know jump around. So uh, it's really nice uh, for me to slow down and be forced uh, to engage at that speed. The other thing that I've done, and this has been relatively more recent, is that for a while I was combining that audiobook thing with the like, yeah, let's layer yet more work. Into my private time <laughs> by by you know listening to podcasts and listening to technical things and you know watching um, closure videos while I'm on the elastic or on the uh, stairmaster or whatever. So uh, I've made a, a concrete commitment to not do that, and so the kinds of things that I do audiobook uh, are 100% fun driven. And <laughs> interestingly, I find even having done that that I end up having interesting work related thoughts sometimes and you know jotting them down but for the most part uh, it really is you know uh, a complete opportunity to have my brain engaged in an interesting way with the thoughts of another human with no immediate work agenda so if people have, have not spent time trying that I would definitely encourage it
0: well I think that's wonderful and I uh, I, I am, have had similar experiences where it sometimes it's just time to turn down the old work a meter a little bit Or the work knob, whatever it is. So, but it's it's funny too because I think when I think about the advice people have given, how much of it um, could be summarized as "Don't work so gosh darn much." (laughs) And so I think your your advice, although unique, is um, is definitely uh, is definitely right on that line, and and therefore that stands you in good company. So, thank you for that, Um, and of course, thank you for coming on the show today. Um, It's a weekend, and uh, you know, despite our Despite our statements about not working, I'm really glad that you were able to take time out of your Sunday morning and talk to me. I am always glad to talk to you. I mean, Stu. we've been friends for, I think, enough years now that we can comfortably call it forever. Um, and so it's super fun to talk to you, but also, you know, to get a chance to record it and share with other people has been great. So thanks so much for coming on the show today.
1: Uh, it's a great pleasure to talk to you, as always, Craig.
0: Uh, likewise. And so we'll go ahead and close it down there. This has been the Cognacast. have been listening to the Cognicast. The Cognicast is a production of Cognitech Inc, whom you can find on the web at Cognitech.com and on Twitter at cognitech. You can subscribe to the Cognicast, listen to past episodes and view cover art and show notes that are home on the web cognitech.com/podcast. You can contact us by tweeting at Cognicast or by emailing us at podcast at cognitech.com. Our guest today was Stu Holloway on Twitter at Stuart Halloway. S-T-U-A-R-T-H-A-L-L-O-W-A-Y. Episode cover art is by Michael Parenteau. Audio production by Russ Olson. The CogniCast is produced by Kim Foster. Our theme music is Thumbs Up for Rock and Roll by Kill the Noise with Feed Me. I'm your host, Craig Andera. Thanks for listening.